Today we're going to be doing the uh, basic theology class on inspiration and inerrancy. Hope you guys had a chance to look over those verses. Um, this topic is very, very significant, uh, especially in our generation, but the truth is that it has always been significant. And so I, I, I'm going to open in prayer, and I really want our hearts to be tuned in to the scriptures today, because this is such a debated topic in our day, and has led those who have veered off course, it has led many, many astray. So what a significant topic, the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom by your spirit, that you would teach us, that our hearts would be open. And Father, even though we may all be on the same page here, that we would be able to not just believe it, but be able to articulate this truth in a way that is honest with your scriptures and speaks to the heart of men. And Father, I I ask God to this morning equip us through your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, a, a receptionist was typing up the church bulletin and she read that Sunday morning what she had actually printed in the bulletin and realized the significance of misplaced spaces. This is what she read. Refreshments after the sermon will be gin at 10 a.m. No, 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 no. They will begin at 10 a.m. You know, mistakes like this obviously are rather significant, important. They can say a lot about your church. And uh, so errors such as this are obviously very important. Uh, But we live in a day in which as people study the scriptures, more and more they are walking away with this feeling, "Ah, it's, it's okay if the Bible has errors. And we need to look at this topic this morning because I'm going to disagree with it. I believe that our belief in the inerrancy of scripture, as well of course as the inspiration of scripture, is very, very important. It gives us the starting place for whatever we believe in. Um, I want you to imagine yourself in a courtroom setting. Maybe you're on a, in a Perry Mason show. And Perry Mason, remember him? And I, I want you to imagine the prosecuting attorney and the the defend the defense attorney and they have this tendency to scrutinize the witness and why is it that they do this what are some of the reasons why they will pummel the witness many times they may pummel the witness with questions what is their goal in this and there's a number of goals but what might be some Stephen um, to make sure that they are accurately recalling it or to trick them up okay now it's good to you know that they're they're sharing truth there and, and that they're recalling the information correctly. And to do that, though, how would they know if they're recalling the information correctly or not? If they contradict themselves. Okay, they contradict themselves. If they contradict themselves, 
What is that a telltale sign of? Lying. That they have actually been making the story up. I mean, imagine yourself as you're telling a story and you start contradicting yourself. Why would you why would you contradict you know, either the the guy shot his gun at twelve noon or eight in the morning, but you know, it's not both. Okay? It there's there's certain facts that okay, you know, if there's there's a fudge factor of fifteen, maybe fifteen minutes, maybe half an hour, and people understand that we're humans, we're kind of guessing a little bit here. But if you're really off within your own story, there's going to be an issue of of this contradicting yourself that's going to reveal something about your story, and that is, well, you probably made this up. And so as we as we look at this illustration of a courtroom setting. The truthfulness of the witness, the facts that he shares are very significant. And in order to discredit the witnesses, Stephen was saying, they're going to want to ask questions to find these contradictions. Now, there is also this question of stories that, you know, one witness says this, another witness says this. And it is possible that they are simply two perspectives, that one person thought they saw a certain person, but it only looked like them, and so their information would not be accurate. But sometimes different perspectives on things, like in the Gospels, one may record there were two blind men outside Jericho that were healed. One would record that there's just one. You know, why the discrepancy? Some would say when the ladies went into the tomb of Jesus, that there are some of the Gospels that says that there was one angel. Others say that there are two. And I believe it's Mark says that when they walked into the tomb, they, there was a man. And so, are, are these contradictions? Are they just different perspectives? And some would say it, it really doesn't matter because we're, we're not wanting to focus on inerrancy. That is, that there are no contradictions in the Bible. Now, I'm going to disagree with that. And what I, what I want us to do is, is examine this concept of inspiration and inerrancy, um, because they really do, whatever conclusion we draw, really does have a profound impact on how we view the Bible, even how we view God, and to what degree then, it, with our conclusion, what degree do we accept this Bible as authoritative? Because when we discredit a witness on the witness stand, he is no longer authoritative. We don't want to believe him. And I'm going to say the same thing goes with Scripture. We believe it in the courtroom. We would believe it when it comes to Scripture. Though others, of course, would disagree with that. But I believe that these truths, inspiration and inerrancy, are very, very vital. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You'll find that to be the first verse on, in, in the book here. 2 Timothy 3.16 I'm going to be reading from the NIV. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every 
good work. I lied. That's verses 16 and 17. Now, the King James uses the term inspiration. What does inspiration mean? If maybe you just break it down. Anybody have a guess? Inspiration. To, to spire or to expire means to breathe out. To inspire would mean, therefore, to breathe in. And this concept of breathing is at the heart of this Greek word. I'm going to write it up here. It is the Greek word theanoustos. This is for inspired? This is the word for inspired. The NIV has God breathe, and it's broken down theos, theos, pneustos, or we get, you may be familiar with pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit. This is therefore literally God breathed. Now the reason why the NIV and many other more modern translations use this is because it has more of a significance as far as how this inspiring or God breathing took place. So if we're going to say something's inspired, many times uh, people would say, like present day, they would say that a certain poet was truly inspired when he wrote. And all that we mean, we don't, by inspired, we, 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 we don't mean something like um, God spoke directly through that, pro, that poet to me, okay? And therefore, it's infallible and inerrant. All we simply mean when we use this term inspired is that, uh, that he, he spoke truth um, and that it ministered to me. And we, we, we can even say that his poetry was inspiring. And in saying that, we are talking about how it has impacted me. Now this is significant as, as I lay out for you four different views of inspiration. There are actually more than this, but I'm going to stick just to four uh, more of the most prevalent views. The, the first is the liberal view. And they would really focus on this word inspire as I just described it to you. That scripture is only inspired to the degree in which anybody, we might say, is inspired. It, it certainly would not mean that they are kept from error, that they're that what they say is infallible and authoritative completely. But these are just really good spiritual ideas. It doesn't mean that it's accurate scientifically, uh, historically, and anything else that we could use to measure the accuracy of Scripture. They could even have spelling errors, they could have uh, grammatical errors, and that's okay because that's not what we're talking about when Scripture is inspired, so the liberal view says. And so consequently, when they look at the, the teachings, for example, in Luke about the virgin birth, they would discredit that. They would say, well, obviously that didn't happen. They're, they're, Luke is simply using it, and Matthew would as well, to be able to portray to us the significance of this man Jesus. 
So they use this embellished story to do that. It doesn't mean that Jesus was literally born of a virgin. And so, factually, they would say, that's inaccurate. Let's get at the religious truth of it. They would look at the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, of course, because nobody can. Miracles don't happen. Let's erase the miracles in the Bible. And let's just find out what are the religious truths for us today. And so they would use this term called, that's used today, that it is... um, it is infallible with regard to faith and practice. Very common phrase, infallible with regard to faith and practice, that it speaks truth to us. It is inspired with regard to faith, faith and practice, faith and practice. Not with regard to details, facts. And here's the question that we really need to ask ourselves. What do we base our beliefs on? What is going to cause me to say that this book is inspired? The book itself tells me it is inspired. At some point, I have to take this step of faith, according to the liberal view, that I'm going to accept this as authoritative or helpful concerning faith and practice. Um, But beliefs are... What do we base our beliefs on? If I started talking to you about a particular conspiracy for the JFK assassination, you would only believe me with regard to how well I've established my facts. Otherwise, you will not believe what I say. You cannot divorce beliefs from the facts. If the facts are wrong, why should I believe you? Now, this is important. You cannot divorce beliefs from facts. And yet, this is what the liberal view will try to do. The facts are inconsequential. We just want to talk about like Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, and we're going to get into this when we look at Jesus' atonement. Um, The moral influence theory suggests that when Jesus died for the sins of the world, that doesn't mean that the cross in some way impacted our sins by washing them away. Rather, This moral influence view says that when I read about the death of Jesus on the cross, that says to me, complete sacrifice for people, laying my life down for others. And as I embrace this truth and lay my life down for others, that will cause me not to sin. And that's why it's called the moral influence theory of the atonement. The cross didn't accomplish anything except to impact me and how I should live my life so that the more I lay my life down and love others, the less I sin. And so in that way, they say, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Well, as you study scripture, that is is not what scripture teaches. It isn't a moral example, but 
That is not what is meant by uh, Jesus dying for the sins of the world, to simply give us a moral example that influences us. Okay, And so facts are very important. Jesus truly did rise from the dead. If I am simply going to uh, believe that Scripture is only uh, helpful for faith and practice and that it is not inerrant, then I'm going to suggest to you that your faith is not based on facts and your faith therefore is invalid. Now we're going to unwrap this some more. There's, there's significance in this. So that is the liberal view. Now, the next view is... Let me erase this. The next view is the neo-Orthodox view. I'm going to suggest to you that this right here is probably the most harmful of the, the three views I'm going to list up here that I disagree with. The reason is because the neo-Orthodox view came about in response to the liberal view. As the liberal view began promulgated, especially in the 1800s, moving into the 1900s, there were a number of people like Karl Barth who were becoming increasingly uncomfortable. They embraced uh, the, uh, the critical views of the day in putting the Bible under the microscope and saying things like, the Exodus did not happen because there is simply no evidence that substantiates the Exodus. Now, uh, there are some excellent books and videos uh, that there is tremendous amounts of uh, archaeological evidence that supports the Exodus. However, they would suggest in these books and in these videos, I got one for my birthday that's, that's absolutely excellent. I love it. I just can't remember the title of it, but very good. And he suggests it's because they're looking in the wrong place and they're looking in the, the wrong time era. So, they would suggest that there is plenty of evidence. However, the liberal view says that the accidents didn't really happen, and so all we're going to walk away with is, so what's the application for us? And this, if, if you cannot embrace the, the truth of Scripture and you lower it, it becomes less and less authoritative. And therefore, if you're going to tell me that the Bible is not trustworthy and then tell me to apply it to my life, there's an internal, contradict in, internal contradiction in your reasoning and I'm not going to want to apply it. I'm not going to want to live it. And so what they did is the liberal view began to divest the scripture of authority. So the neo-Orthodox come to the rescue of scripture, so they believed, and Karl Barth, uh, and I'm going to read some names to you so that you, when you see these names pop up, understand they are representative of this view that I'm about to describe for you. Karl Barth. Carl uh, is with a K, yes. Carl Barth. And if you misspell these names, that's fine. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a neo-Orthodox writing in the 30s and 40s. He was in Germany put into prison because he refused to give allegiance to Hitler. Um, 
his, if you read his book, The Cost of Discipleship, it sounds so right on. And yet, later in his letters in prison, he expressed, his concern was people would misunderstand him. And in part it's because he is a neo-Orthodox theologian. He will talk like a conservative, but believe like a liberal. Let me list through some others of these before I kind of explain what this view holds. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann. He used this term called demythologizing. I'm not going to get into that, but that, that's a term that's regularly associated with him in his books. Emil Bruner, E-M-I-L. Bruner. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Niebuhr, N-I-E-B-U-R-H. And here's one who is not. He came later, William Barclay. William Barclay. Here is... Here is the deceptiveness of this view. When you read them... Excuse me. When you read them, they will sound very much like conservatives. But when you ask them, so do you believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, they will tell you no. Do you believe that, that, this, that there is a man by the name of Jesus who lived in history and did these miracles? They would say no. They place... Uh, truth on two different or history on two different levels they will speak of secular history and then they will speak of religious history they will embrace the criticism of the liberal view and they will say, well, of course, the Exodus didn't happen. Jesus didn't do miracles. There was no worldwide flood. Um, Jonah was not swallowed by a big fish. Um, Jesus' miracles are invalid. Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead. But here's what they would say to the liberals. They would say, all of this analysis that you do to the scriptures um, is, is inconsequential. We don't need to find the historical Jesus. There is no need for this type of a search. We don't need to go back into history and see what Cicero and Plutarch and uh, a number of others uh, that that wrote about Jesus have to say. Um, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. Um, ah, It's... Uh, G.A. Wells, in the 90s, very popular speaker. He strongly promoted this concept of the Christ myth and that this Jesus that we read about in Scripture never even existed. Now, most people wouldn't say that. As a matter of fact, there there are extremely few few people, uh, from my recollection, about 0.1% of historians that would accept that type of a view. They just don't believe it because there is substantial 
historical evidence outside of the Bible that would substantiate the existence of a historical Jesus. G.A. Wells' purpose, however, is to undermine... There are nine authors, Josephus, having spoken about Jesus twice, so ten records that we have referring to Jesus. And what G.A. Wells will do, it did, is he went through systematically and undermined all of those historians, rendered any comments about Jesus as invalid and wrongly influenced. And the conclusion that he came to was this Jesus, he was not a historical figure. He was made up. He is a myth. Now, most people would not accept that. They would, if they don't accept the Gospels, they would at least use the term religion, uh, legend. That it, there was a historical Jesus, but then, you know, being a wise teacher, people began to embellish certain things that he did. When he fed the 5,000, there was no miracle about it. He had the boy come forward, five loaves, two fishes. The boy sacrificed his lunch and everybody else dug deep into their back wallet, in their back pockets, their wallets, uh, their lunches and shared their lunches and that's how the 5,000 were fed. And it's not a, a story of a miracle except, or rather it is a story of this concept of love and sacrifice and sharing. Which certainly is not the point of the story at all. It is a miracle. And there's significance to this, especially in the context of where it is in, in each gospel. And so the, the liberal view would undermine this. And then the neo-Orthodox view would say, this is not important. Secular history is, is not important because the scriptures are on a different historical level. They are on a religious historical level. And so it seeks to divide history into two sections, the historical, which actually happened, and the religious, which did not necessarily, and that's the way they would put it, not necessarily, it could have, may not have, but it, it doesn't matter. Did Jesus bodily rise from the dead? They would probably say no, but it doesn't matter. Because as I read the Gospels, the Gospels say it happened, so I'm going to believe that. Well, wait a second. Our beliefs founded on facts or, or do beliefs is beliefs just something that I choose to do because I like it because it's beneficial to me to believe in the cross because wow this story of sacrifice that's how I want to live my life and so the cross has moved from a his, secularly historical perspective to a religiously historical perspective okay forget about the facts not important Let's focus on the story itself, much like a fable. Do you ever ask whether a fable it can be substantiated historically? Of course not. Billy Goat's Gruff? Well, I'm sure that that didn't happen because goats can't talk. And I'm not quite sure I believe in trolls. Um, the Boy Who Cried Wolf? Okay, well, maybe... But see, we don't need to ask that question about a parable because the, the historical background is inconsequential what we want to know is the moral lesson of the story. So I would suggest to you that the neo-Orthodox view holds that position that what we're really dealing with in the New Testament and the Old Testament are stories that we need to treat much as we would treat a fable. 
Was there a real Adam and Eve? It doesn't matter because when they fell, that meant to us that there is an inclination in the heart of man to sin. World War II especially proved that to us. And so that's the, that's the moral of the story of Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve. That is their position. So as you read through Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, book, The Cost of Discipleship, you may find it to be very edifying and encouraging <clears throat> that the church has really lost its credibility, especially in his day, and the focus needs to be on Jesus once again and not on uh, religious things. Let's get back to Jesus. Well, wow, what an absolutely on-target truth that is. However, when he talks about Jesus, he does not talk about Jesus as we would. Let's believe. Let's let's look and weigh and apply the uh, the moral of the story. And so I'm going to encourage you. I'm not going to say don't read these guys' books, but just realize that's where they're coming from. William Barclay, <clears throat> um, Martin Lloyd Jones, one of the most uh, profound preachers of the mid 19th or 20th century, in the 60s and such, uh, from England. <clears throat> labeled William Barclay as one of the most dangerous men on the planet. Was it that, sorry? Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Very conservative person. And again, the reason is because they sound conservative, but they are by no means conservative. They believe as liberals. What did William Barclay write? William Barclay, ah, Wow. The, I believe it's called The Mind of Jesus. Um, he was on the radio quite a bit. People looked, he wrote a, a commentary series that <clears throat> many pastors have in their library who would be conservative, pastors who would be conservative. But the commentary series is, is not. Um, so, uh, again... The neo-orthodox view, uh, even though they may write some very helpful and, and even profound uh, truths, they are not orthodox. They are not conservative. They are very liberal in their viewpoint of scripture. But again, they will truly believe they were rescuing the scriptures from the liberals. The third is called the conceptual view of inspiration <clears throat> and the conceptual view of inspiration would say that the concepts of the Bible the ideas of the Bible not necessarily the specific words of the Bible are inspired of, or, or are inerrant and Infallible. So they would tend not to use the term inerrant, they would use the term infallible. So <clears throat> the Bible in what it teaches for faith and practice cannot fail. They are absolutely true. However, 
they would say, let's be very careful as we get into particular words because they don't believe, as this next view would, called plenary inspiration, or the plenary view, also called, um, instead of plenary, the... uh, they would use the term verbal inspiration. Um, the plenary or verbal view is that every word in Scripture is not only inspired, but both infallible and inerrant. And I'm going to write those two words up here. Infallible and inerrant. infallible and inerrant. Now, between these two views, I'm not going to say that someone who holds to a conceptual view that automatically discounts them from salvation. I I think we need to be careful on this. This is not necessarily, and that's how I'm going to word this, it's not necessarily a salvation issue. It certainly could be, depending on what person believes about the gospel as a result of holding to the conceptual view. But many theologians in our day, they may not hold to a strict plenary view or verbal view of inspiration, but they certainly believe in every element of the gospel that we would as well. And they truly believe it. And they don't separate, like the neo-Orthodox do, the scriptures on a, uh, a secular historical level and a religious historical level. They don't do that. So do they believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead? Yes, they do. Um, <clears throat> the problem, though, with this view, and then we're going to look at it more in depth, is that if you don't believe, if you believe that the Bible is filled with errors, I'm going to suggest to you that at that point, you begin to step on a slippery slope, okay? And so, just because I I believe that the Bible may have a handful of errors, that's not going to discount me from salvation. However, my caution would be, if you do that, where do you stop? Because here's what you have done. You have now placed yourself as the judge of what is error and what is not. If you are the judge of what is true, completely true, and what is not, what has error and what does not, have you not, as setting yourself up as the judge of Scripture, placed yourself above Scripture? Do you understand what I'm saying there? If I have the authority to say what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is error in the Bible... I am now placing myself as judge and therefore over the authority of the Bible. Okay? That is the concept of of being a judge. And I I do remember I was at a conference and uh, I I was, I think I was, yeah, I was there. Stephen, I think you were there with me actually. And we were, we were promoting Finish Well and a gentleman came up to me and started talking about education and such and few things I didn't quite agree with him and then he then he he, he asked me so do you believe that the Bible is inerrant and I said 
Oh, absolutely. He said, really? So how do you treat, and he threw out a couple um, suggestions that if we have time, I'm going to have us look at at the end here. And he said, well, then how do you treat these things? And I said, well, I, I do believe that there is a very good reason, a very good explanation for what you are proposing as errors or as, um, as hypothetical errors. And we, we could look at those. But here's my concern for you. We could go through how many schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, University of Pennsylvania even, and many others that when they started, they accepted the plenary view of Scripture, but as time went on, the, they, be, they began to come to this opinion that there were errors in the Bible, that no flood happened, they began to adopt the theories of evolution, and if evolution is true, that undermined Genesis 1 to 11, that uh, not only in creation of man, but also the flood, the Tower of Babel, etc. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are thrown out, or at least treated as non historical, but religiously helpful. And the, the question then becomes, once you step onto this slippery slope, just like these schools did, where do you stop? Because you might believe that there's only a handful of errors, and so you hold to this conceptual view, but now you start discipling others, and here is what history has always shown us. Those disciples, wherever the generation may be, they eventually wander away and they now undermine the inerrancy of Scripture to the point where they don't believe it anymore. Because they cannot accept something that has error after error. And, and, and I think we would agree with that. We, we've just talked about it in the very beginning in a courtroom setting. If, if, you, uh, if you poke holes in the witnesses' stories, that be, and it, the story begins to ring untrue, he is discredited. And so we're very concerned about accepting anything that he says. And so here is the danger of stepping into this conceptual view and embracing this concept that the Bible does have errors because now, before you know it, well, wait a second, did Jesus even do miracles? Did Jesus bodily rise from the dead? That is what the gospel writers say, but how do I know that that's factual? Where do I stop in my assessment of the, of the Bible in saying there's error here and error there? Okay? So why do I hold to this view? Why do I think we should hold to this view of plenary or verbal inspiration? Because I do believe this is very important in our day. Um, turn with me to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. Actually, I'm going to start with nineteen. It says, "And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place." Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
Above all, listen to this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, I I think we need to take one more step forward in saying, well, how did this inspiration take place because it is certainly not as Karl Barth said that the Bible contains the word of God it is not the word of God and by that he meant when I sit down and read it there are certain things in the Bible that's going to jump out to me and minister to me at that moment what I just read that ministered to me that is the word of God for me right now so God speaks through the word But that then says that we determine what is the word of God and what is not. It also uses this term inspiration not from how scriptures originated from the authors. What they wrote is not so much inspired as I am now being inspired. Okay, Do you understand the difference there? Inspiration took place at the at the authorship of these 66 books. It didn't take place in my heart when I read it. Mm -hmm. Have you not read things in which you walked away saying, wow, that really inspired me? That is not what Paul is telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. That's not what he means by inspired or God-breathed. That God just suddenly breathed into me as I read this passage. No, that God-breathing took place when Paul wrote that passage. It's God breathed there. Can I yes. ask a question? Sure. Because they, just to clarify though, because he's talking about prophecy, prophetic. Right. He's not talking about um, stories that could be by the, the liberals interpreted as allegorical, right? Is he talking about that or is he talking about prophetic stuff like Isaiah? Well, we would have to say that all of Scripture came from the pen of a prophet. And, and, and that's, that's, how, that's how Scripture comes about, because God speaks to the person, even as an apostle, he is writing prophetically. And all that means is, he is now being a spokesman for God. Okay? So, so prophecy isn't necessarily predicting something that's Correct. going to come out. All right, because prophecy can always be divided between foretelling and foretelling. All right? When someone stands up in a church even today, we're going to get into spiritual gifts much later in the course, but prophecy, when someone speaks a prophetic word, it is not just foretelling. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say that the vast majority of prophecy is forthtelling. That is, speaking to the heart of men so that in 1 Corinthians 14, even the unbeliever would fall down in your midst and say, surely God is among you. Why? Because he predicted the future? No. Because he unveiled the secrets of his heart. Okay? So, forthtelling. And, and that, for that reason, when we're reading history, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, even though they're historical books, they were penned by prophets. And therefore, anointed by God, spokesmen of God, and they wrote down what God showed them to write. Let's also realize that Scripture did not come about 
by an author going into some religious trance and kind of closing his eyes and writing and becoming a mere dictator of what God spoke to him. I think we, because that would eliminate the human element. But just because, on the other hand, just because a human is writing and the human is fallible mm -hmm. and writes with error does not mean, therefore, that scripture is fallible or scripture has error. Because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if you're carried along by the Holy Spirit, then that is, that is something that can be attributed only to people when they're writing Scripture. When a prophet speaks today, even though God may be speaking through him, we are called to weigh what he says, whether it is truth or not, and then we weigh it for application as well. Just this command to weigh someone's, someone's words, we don't weigh Scripture in that way. Is this true or is it not? All right. So the way a prophet might stand up in a congregation or prophetess and speak, we weigh their words because they may not be hitting the bullseye with the word of God. We need to realize this. Okay. However, when people wrote scripture, we are never told to weigh scripture. Okay. But we are told to weigh prophecies. Okay. <clears throat> do not treat, do not quench the spirit, and do not treat prophecies with contempt. Okay, and it, and it tells us, therefore, to um, to discern the good, the bad. So, prophecy today is not on the same level as scripture. So, every book in the Bible was penned from a prophet. Even though he may have the title Apostle, they are writing prophetically and under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew 22 says, and, and I'm not going to have his turn there, but it says that David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Now again, that is not meaning that David sat there and went into a religious trance and simply dictated exactly what the Holy Spirit said. Because as you read through the scriptures, what you find is the personality of the writer shining through. Um, Peter himself says in 2 Peter 3 that some of what Paul says is hard to understand and unstable men twist it to their own destruction. Does Peter write that way? Really, uh, Peter's a little bit more straightforward. Uh, there are a few passages like 1 Peter 3 that can be a little bit tough to get some clarity on. But the truth is, Peter writes more straightforward and in an uncomplicated fashion than Paul does. Paul was trained as a rabbi under Gamaliel, one of the most prominent men in the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was an intellectual, Paul was an intellectual man. And so he writes that way. Very theological, but I'm going to also say very practical in his writings. Peter tended more towards the practical and more simple type of Greek construction and, and teachings. 
And so you see that personality coming through. You see that in John. Here is, here is John, and he is called, James and John, they are called the sons of thunder. What do you mean, Jesus? They didn't, they're not accepting us. You know what? How about if we just call fire down from heaven and burn them up? And Jesus rebuked them. Whoa, whoa, guys. No, we're, we're going to move on. And, wow, John, he was a hothead. However, when you read his writings some 60, 50 to 60 years later, you don't hear that in him anymore. When you read through 1 John, that is a love epistle. That is talking about the, the love of God and that we love because he first loved us. And what the, the life of the Christian looks like, it's characterized by love. And wow, really, is this the same John? Because he was transformed through the cross and that 50 to 60 years of the Spirit of God revealing this, this junk that was in his life and scooping it out, the, the heat of the trials and just bringing the dross to the surface, the Spirit scooping it off, and consequently he was a refined man. He was a man that the Spirit, he had allowed the Spirit of God to reveal and remove these, the, 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 the underpinnings, the reasons why he was an angry man, a, a son of thunder, okay? And so, so God did a work in his life, and you can see that in his writings. So I'm going to suggest to you that God directed these men, knowing John, knowing that God wanted John to write this love epistle of 1 John, God needed to bring him through trials and refining and bring him to that place where he would write something like this. God needed a very intellectual man to be able to write some of these deeper truths, deeper theological truths, such as justification by faith and, and the, the, the predestination of God and some of these things that we're trying to wrap our minds around and if we're not careful, the, you know, it, it's hard. And, but it needed to be said, and so God raised up this man, Paul, brought him through the refinings of life to this place that when he wrote, God was able to speak through him so that what he produced was both infallible and errant and inerrant and yet reflected his personality. He was, God didn't dictate scripture because he allowed the personality and the, the influences of life's circumstances and learning to impact him, and yet he was carried along by the Spirit so that what he was to write was exactly what was in the heart of God at that moment. And so, in this way, it is both, this document, we call the Bible, is both human and yet divine. And it, as we bring these two together, we are going to come to this conclusion that it was not just infallible, but inerrant as well. So turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to see this concept of inerrancy coming forward a little bit more. <clears throat> and that would be letter G. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. 
And Jesus is, in the Sermon on the Mount, He is saying, starting in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let me just pause there for a moment. By the word fulfill, He is not talking about prophecy like Isaiah 53 and that He's going to fulfill those prophecies. Because in the next after the portion I'm going to read, he gives six examples from the Old Testament that are moral commands and they are not predictions. And Jesus, in essence, is saying that he has fulfilled these. Okay? That's his point here. And he didn't come to abolish, excuse me, the moral law, but he came to fulfill the moral law, to live it perfectly. Jesus needed to do that. Jesus needed to live the moral law perfectly in order to become that perfect sacrifice and show us the way to do it. So that when we want to know what does it mean to really love your enemies, we will see how Jesus did that. Okay? And and so Jesus fulfilled this. There's much more to that, but Jesus didn't abolish the law. He didn't set it aside so that when we look at the Old Testament, we say, yeah, that's, that's been abolished. We don't need it anymore. You know, they just simply serve as examples, and that's it. No, they are shadows of things to come. There is the, the moral law still, as, as we bring it into the New Testament, it applies. Um, you know, there's more to it than that, I realize. But Jesus is not telling us, uh, you know, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, you need to set those aside now because I fulfilled them. No, that's not what he is saying. So let me, let me go on I, because here's really what I want us to get at. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He uses this term until, same Greek word, until twice in that sentence. And that, that, I, I, don't, I personally don't like that when, when you do something like that, but Jesus has a point. Matthew, as he's recording this, has a reason for this because he's wanting to equate both of those untils. Until heaven and earth pass away. And then it says, until all of these things are accomplished. They happen at the same time. And so until that time in which heaven and earth disappears, then we hold to everything in this book. Now, I I, I realize that the uh, ceremonial defilement, those types of uh, commands, as we move into the New Testament... Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial, and so there are, there are several, many uh, of those types of commands that are now fulfilled in Christ. Um, we, we don't have time. If you were to look through Leviticus 19, you'd find several of them. But there's a difference between ceremonial defilement and moral defilement. The moral defilement passages are those that carry into the New Testament. The ceremonial defilement do not. They are shadows. Okay. Now, Jesus then, he's saying here that we embrace all of this, all of the scriptures. Now, obviously, he's speaking before the New Testament is written. So I think, though, we need to still take what he says 
and apply it to the New Testament, not one jot or tittle, not the least stroke of a pen, not the smallest letter will fail or should be done away with or be abolished until everything is fulfilled. That is when heaven and earth pass away. So what does that say then about the letters, not just the words, verbal inspiration, not just the words, but the letters themselves, whether a word is singular or plural. Let me show you one here in in Galatians chapter 3. This too is significant. The the issue here in Galatians 3.16, Paul's point is that this word seed is singular for a reason. He says, Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed. And he's quoting from the Old Testament in Genesis. And to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So th- what this does now, he could have seen, he could have said, and to your seeds, okay, meaning your descendants in the plural. But that would have closed the door on the fulfillment of that being Christ. And and even in this Galatians 3 passage, the promise given to Abraham wasn't just to him, but all nations would be blessed through him. How would that happen? Paul says it happened through Christ. And so... To the one Abraham, to the one that was given this promise, and to your seed, it was purposefully singular so that Christ could then be seen as the ultimate fulfillment of that. Not just that Abraham would have a a huge, um, a, a number of descendants, as many as the sands of the seashore, creating a nation, all of this true, but that word needed to be singular so that it could not only be seen as fulfilled in a nation being birthed from him, but also the person, singular, Christ himself, being the ultimate fulfillment of this. And so, whether that Hebrew word is singular or plural, to Paul, was very important. And so we read passages like this, in which a big deal is made of a single word, or even a letter, or a short little phrase, it is more than just the concepts of Scripture that are important and inerrant. It must be the very words and letters themselves. Um, <clears throat> the New Testament affirms the validity, the truthfulness of these stories that we read about in the Old Testament. If the flood did not happen, Jesus would not have talked about on what's commonly called his Olivet Discourse, such as in Matthew 24. He would have not talked about Noah and the the, the people of his day being given into eating and drinking and just the, the normal stuff of life and judgment or destruction came on them suddenly. He wouldn't have talked about that because that wouldn't have happened according to the liberal view. That was just a story that's used. It's like a fable. It's like it's just a story that's meant for us. We just grab the application. Well, no, it is factual. That is what happened because our beliefs must be based upon facts, truth. 
So Jesus himself verifies that the, that the flood of Noah actually happened. Jesus also talks about Jonah being in the belly of the, the, the whale, the big fish, and verifying for us the truthfulness of that story. It was not something that Jonah made up. It wasn't a nice little story that we don't need to worry about the facts of it. It's meant for us to just simply take a nice moral principle away with us and, and apply. No, the story itself is rooted in history and is factual. And this is why Jesus refers to it. He is not just simply accommodating to the view of his people that it actually happened. And, and many people use this accommodation theory that Jesus and the, and the writers of the New Testament, they're accommodating to the, the, uh, the, the, his, their audience. But they don't believe the story is true. His, their audience do, so they speak as if it is true. No. They, you, you can't substantiate that in, uh, according to the, the scriptures. They truly do believe this. That even goes so far as to say that, well, the prevailing view in Jesus' day was that there were demons and demons could uh, inhabit people and control them. But Jesus didn't believe that. What he really believed in is, as modern science would call it, they're just simply having seizures. Okay, so these people who fall down and foam at the mouth, they're just having seizures. And Jesus knew this, so he, he healed them, but he... He spoke of it, and the authors spoke of it, the gospel writers spoke of it as if Jesus truly was casting out a demon. So Jesus was, they would say, accommodating to their view of that day. But it, it, and I'm not going to get into this, but you can actually systematically go through the New Testament, and there, there are people who did have seizures, and they're listed separately, and the, the gospel writers recognized that there were people who had seizures and epileptic fits, and the, they were not demonized. And so we realize Jesus is not, a, he is not taking epilepsy and accommodating to the view of his people and calling it demonization. He's not doing that. And you can go through scripture and see that Jesus, when he refers to, to demonization and cast demons out, he's doing that because that's actually what happened. So when he's talking about Noah and the flood, that actually happened. When we talk about Adam and Eve, it's because that that story actually took place. When he's talking about Jonah in the belly of the fish, he's talking about it because it actually happened. When he's talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking about them not as nice little stories to apply, but they actually happened. The parting of the Red Sea, what an incredible miracle. The authors of the New Testament write about that story because it actually happened. And so... We need to realize this, this, this concept of moving away from inerrancy is, has significant impact for us. Because if, if the Bible has error here and there, then, and, and I am told, go to Matthew, excuse me, Luke 24. Luke 24. Jesus, in verse 25, Luke 24, 25, he says, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe some of the things that the prophets have spoken. What word do you have in your Bible? Don't you have some of the things? What do you have, Sarah? All. All the things? 
You mean to tell me that when I read through the Old Testament, I have to believe everything that the prophets have said? Not just some of them? Because you can go online, I'm not going to give you the website, in part because I can't remember it anymore, but I can remember when I was wanting to research the prophecy of Ezekiel 26 uh, concerning the destruction of Tyre. And you can do that. You can look at Ezekiel 26. Powerful, amazing prophecy that Ezekiel gives. And someone who claims to be a Christian, and I don't know where he falls in this, uh, he certainly doesn't hold to the plenary view, and, and I doubt that he would hold even to the conceptual view, because he would say that Ezekiel 26 was a failed prophecy. And we read just a few chapters later, he suggests that Ezekiel was conceding this. And I, I think, and, and I even responded to him, I say, but, and, and I laid out just a few things, and I would say, maybe you should go back and just study this passage one more time. And he wrote back, excuse me, I have four doctorates. <laughs> and he came from a conservative denomination, which I later found out he got kicked out of. And he was actually a teacher in one of their colleges. But he got kicked out of it because of this, because of his view, his, his view of inerrancy. And he did believe that the Bible was filled with error. Ezekiel 26, being a filled prophecy, would be an example of that. But Jesus just told them how slow of heart you are to not believe all that the prophets have said. And, and he doesn't just say what all of the prophets have said about me. Though that would be what his point is in the next verse. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. But that he, he, he was giving a generalized statement there in verse 25 that how slow of heart you to believe all that the prophets have spoken, period. Well, my Bible actually has an exclamation mark. I'm fine with that. But that's his point. All that the prophets have said. Now let me take you to those passages of Scripture that speak about the Christ himself. So his challenge is here that we believe all that the prophets have said. We don't look at Ezekiel 26 and try and undermine it. Because I'm going to tell you what, if, if we do this, and if we suggest that there's error in the Bible, we're going to see a generation raised up that does not trust the Bible. Because if God was willing to carry men along by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke error, I am not going to trust that God. He is not, a, he's not, an, inf, he is not an infallible witness. He has been discredited. So I am not going to believe that the Holy Spirit spoke through these people. I am not going to believe that all Scripture is God-breathed or that all of the, what the prophets said is true. And look around us in our day today. They, they, I forget what the figures are. About 80, 80% of teens... By the time they leave high school and go into college their first year, they're abandoning the faith. And their ears are wide open to the teachings of evolution, of atheistic philosophy, of attacks on the scripture that it has filled with error, and consequently it is not to be trusted. But my Bible tells me it, it has no error. In fact, every letter is important. 
And I'm just going to have us look at one Matthew 20, letter C, Matthew 20, 29. And Matthew 20, 29 tells... Ah, went right by it. Matthew 20, 29 is the story of Bartimaeus. And it says, number one, there were two blind men, whereas Luke says there was one. But it says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, and Luke 18.35 says, as Jesus and his disciples were approaching Jericho. Okay, alright, well, maybe this is an error, and that they, they just got it wrong here, because you can't both be leaving a city and approaching it at the same time and seeing this miracle. And some would suggest that these blind men were healed. There was one group of blind men healed as Jesus was approaching Jericho and another group of blind men being healed as he was leaving Jericho. Can I suggest to you, no, no, because the, the, there's so much overlap between these stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that would lead us to believe it is the same story that these gospel writers are sharing with us. What we do know, though, is that there were at least two blind men, and Mark and Luke focus on just one of them. Matthew focuses on the two. You know what? There could have been three, or four, or five, or there could have been a dozen. Matthew chooses to focus on two, and, and, and I would suggest there were probably were two, and that the reason why Mark and Luke focus on one is because that one was the one who did the talking. There were two angels in the tomb. When the ladies went into the tomb, one of the angels did the talking. So a, a, a typical gospel writer, from his perspective, would then refer to that one angel. When they walked in, they saw an angel who said to them, whereas in actuality there were two angels there, one at the foot, one at the head, and only one of them spoke, and this is what they said. And so we have two different perspectives. So we know there were at least two angels. There could have been three or four, probably just two, but one of them did the speaking, and that's why one gospel will refer to two and another refer to one, because the one did the most speaking, which, or, or the only speaking. So that's, that's, that's fair. It, there is no contradiction here, because there is one or two gospel writers refer to one blind beggar and Matthew refers to two. But how is it that they could be approaching and leaving at the same time? How many of you remember when Joshua Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? That, that's, that's the song, sorry, if you're not familiar with it. Um, Joshua led the armies around Jericho and as we all know, the, the people in Jericho threw slurpees down on them, right? Yes. At least that's what veggie tales and, and consequently, though, the walls fell down and they, they won the battle. The curse that Joshua gave was that if anyone rebuilds Jericho, he will be cursed. And we find that in the days of Ahab, someone tried to do that and that prophecy was fulfilled, lost his first son and his second son directly in accord with what Joshua prophesied 
would happen and God's judgment came on that man. Now, that city was not a thriving city. That, that was a... Uh, that would, that's, it still held the name Jericho, but the city that was more prominently referred to as Jericho in the time of Jesus was about a mile away, and that's the city that, um, that Luke is saying that Jesus was approaching. So Jesus was approaching what I'm going to call New Jericho. Matthew is focusing on the city that Joshua destroyed and he was leaving there. And so in between Old Jericho and New Jericho, we see this story unfold of two blind men begging, hearing Jesus is coming and cry out, Lord Son of da- or, or Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he calls him for it, and it says, Bartimaeus tossed his beggar's cloak aside. What profound truth is found in that is he steps forward in faith. Jesus says, what can I do for you? I want to be healed and receive my sight. And Jesus heals him at that moment. And I would suggest to you, because faith is willing to set aside what we have become so accustomed to and to embrace the truth of God and the ability of God to change our life, to heal us, whatever. And that really is what repentance is about, is it not? That we are leaving aside our past, even as blind Bartimaeus cast his beggar's cloak aside and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, this is what I need. And in our time of need, Jesus will always come through for us. Maybe not exactly as we expect, but he will come through for us. And if we're seeking to be rescued from our sin, and we are truly casting the past aside, he will always, 100%, prove himself to be the keeper of his promises, and he will change us, and he will rescue us. So there's no contradiction in the Gospels, whether they were leaving or approaching Jericho, whether there was one beggar or or blind beggar or two, totally consistent, different perspective, but completely consistent. And and I know my time is up, so I'm just going to conclude with this. But it does, um, in Hebrews 9, 3 to 4, it does talk about the altar of incense Uh, being in or the Holy of Holies having the altar of incense. And they said, this gentleman that came to me at the conference, that that was the scripture that he used, saying, see, the author of Hebrews was mistaken. And he believed that Luke was the author, he was a Gentile, and he wrote it, and he just didn't understand, he didn't, he wasn't thoroughly educated in the ways of the Hebrews, and he made a simple error here. How many of you, before I said that, knew that the altar of incense was not in the holy place. How many of you knew that? Okay. Okay, Several hands going up. Uh, uh, Truthfully, for someone who has studied the scriptures and and the whole letter written to Hebrews, and he gives such profound truths of the sanctuary, the temple of Jesus being the high priest, the fulfillment of all of these things. 
uh, what an incredible understanding of the Old Testament he has. And to make a simple error like that? No, there's, there's more to it than this. There, it is not some simple error. And as a matter of fact, as you would go back to 1 Kings 6, I think it's verse 22, it actually talks about the inner sanctuary, which would be the holy place. And then when it refers to the altar of incense, it says the altar of incense that belongs to it. Interesting. Because whenever you view the altar of incense, it is always directly associated with the Ark of the Covenant and specifically the mercy seat, the throne of God. And it gives us a picture of the, the priest offering incense. There is a curtain there, but on the other side is the throne of God. And those, the, the, the incense, as it rises in smoke, it represents, Revelation chapter 5 tells us that it represents the prayers of the saints. But what happened at the cross? That veil was torn in two. So it, it, the, the author of Hebrews, even though he is suggesting that the, inner, the, the Holy of Holies has the altar of incense, we know that technically it's in the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. But the whole idea of the author of what Hebrews is laying out for us is this veil has been torn. And we now, as we stand before the throne of grace and mercy that that Hebrews talks about, God hears our prayers and extends His grace and mercy to us. And so the author of Hebrews is simply wanting to show us this strong connection, especially under the new covenant, between the altar of incense and that mercy seat, the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so no mistake here. He is simply wanting to draw and emphasize that relationship between the two. He knows that it's in the holy place. He knows that. So anyways, uh, actually there's so much more to it than what I just shared with you as far as why that's the case. But that would be a simple explanation. The Bible is without error. And because of this, it is fully trustworthy. God has spoken to us today, and He has fully revealed to us His Son. Everything we need to know to passionately follow after His Son, Jesus, who is the exact representation of God the Father. And as we pursue them and step into this relationship, and as we study the Scriptures, we can embrace everything in this book as truth, even every word and every letter as truth and applicable to our lives today. So that, as we'll look at next week, it has the authority and the power to transform us. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the truths of your word. They are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Use them, God, in our life to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart, to lay us open, to do surgery on our hearts, to, to speak to us, God, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to instruct us in the way we should go. Father, equip every single one of us for every good work that you have. Do it through your word, God, because it is fully, fully trustworthy, even as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.